Well, hello, listeners, and hello, Paul Geesting. I'm Bill Schmidt. Uh, we're here uh, for the next episode of That's So Second Millennium. We're actually physically here at Hesburgh Library at the University of Notre Dame, where we've been able to get together today. Uh, what, it's August uh, 24th, right, Paul? August uh, 24th of 2018. Yeah, right, and the start of a, of a new academic year. Uh, but our podcast uh, continues uh, to explore the past, present, and future uh, amidst all sorts of things going on in the worlds of science and religion. At the moment, uh, uh, Paul, uh, you and I have been talking uh, a lot about the religion news of the day, and we can we can branch off into that uh, later because there is a, a segue as we've as we've been discussing. But right now, we've promised our listeners to uh, continue a discussion of that uh, science and religion compatibility issue, especially as it applies to your specialization, which is uh, your, uh, your work as a geologist. Uh, and so I think when we, we ended the last episode, we were talking about um, a particular uh, geologist, uh, or a particular uh, scientist, who certainly was very much also part of the world of religion. Uh, please uh, continue with that story. Oh yeah, so the uh, the figure in question is one uh, Nicholas Steno, who lived in the uh, latter part of the nineteenth, seventeenth uh, century. So he, uh, in fact, I believe he died in the sixteen eighties, uh, maybe the late sixteen seventies. But uh, he was a bishop. He was actually born a Lutheran in Denmark. Um, and then uh, wandered Europe, as many uh, educated people at that time tended to do, wound up in Florence. And while there, uh, studying and doing his scholarship in the context of a uh, institute that was uh, staffed, staffed is a little bit uh, too strict of a term, it was a very loose arrangement uh, around the court of uh, some of the later Medicis. Mm-hmm. But uh, the uh, pupils, certain pupils of Galileo were prominent members of this grouping. Right. So Steno was there you know, along with them. And he had, and of course, it's the 17th century. So geology is not even, you know, a word that um, people would uh, people would recognize it mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that it's made of two Greek words, you know, geo for the earth and logos for uh, knowing or sense or reason. Uh-huh. But uh, but that's, uh, it was certainly not, that combination is not a word in uh, common parlance until at least the 18th century. That's interesting. Uh-huh. Which is how you can tell that someone could possibly be the founder of something if no one called him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if no one, no one even had a name for his discipline at that yeah, point. Yeah, that, that's really a yeah. way to found something. So, yeah, no one can even name him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a fascinating character. Uh, in many, many ways, uh, because he wound up his life as a Catholic bishop. You know, he'd started as a, uh, a Lutheran in Protestant Denmark, uh, where the idea of being Catholic was unthinkable. Um, he moved to Amsterdam, which at that time was more of a melting pot. People of many different uh, faiths managed to butt heads because there was money to be made. Right. <laughs> That's and the, the Dutch in the late 17th century were nothing loath to make money. Right. Uh, uh, whether it required uh, cooperating with Catholics or Jews or Muslims or whoever, right. um, at least that's uh, that's the point of view pre- uh, presented in this. Uh, book. I mean, that's you know, certainly the Dutch had their own sort of share of. Of course, the Dutch were the people who contributed uh, 
King William III to England because James II was too Catholic. Uh, so there is there's that side of it, but uh, but but you know that's that's uh, the notability were one thing, and the uh, the city of Amsterdam was another. So anyway, Steno okay. spent some time there and actually made his fame in anatomy. Hmm. He was a extremely skilled dissectionist. Oh, he had cut up a lot of dead people and animals in his life, mm-hmm. a lot of them, mm-hmm. uh, and and discovered you know things about glands, about nerves, about the structure of the brain. Um, and then, and, but of course it was the 17th century, so he was, you know, of course a polymath, he wasn't, uh, you know, constrained to any one discipline. And in the course of his wanderings, what Paris, other parts of France, Italy, wound up in Florence, um, he develops an interest in the earth, in mining, and the structure of the earth, and in fossil shells, which Hmm. in the late 17th century had become a much disputed point and many opinions that are really hilarious today were thrown about about whether these shells could ever have actually been belonged to sea creatures and oceans or whether they had to have simply the earth simply grew things like this yeah. and and to look at all of the sort of observational data that we now have as this tight paradigm that we you know see as you know geology and paleontology in fact it's it's almost invisible to us. It's you know, it's just sort of straightforward that we find, say, dinosaur bones in rocks of a certain age, and you know, we take it for granted that someone knows where to find rocks of a certain age. Yeah, um, and that someone had just has gone through all of these arguments and all of this disputation, which mostly happened in the nineteenth century. So you know, two centuries after, well, a century and a half after Steno is when that really sort of got underway in a really you know vigorous manner and systematic sort of way. But Steno is the one who laid down the principles. And Steno, Steno's laws are still taught. I've taught them because I've taught Geology 101. Uh-huh. And in fact, normally we teach three of Steno's laws, but he had four. Um, because, of course, he's, he lays down... It's the 17th century. It's wide open. Uh, uh. If it wasn't for the fact that everything was so confusing, and that's why everything is so wide open, right? It, you know, you'd, you'd want to go back in a time machine and get your name. If you really wanted your name attached to things, you know, go back to the 17th century when yeah. these things were just getting started. That's something. Uh-huh. Um, but in any case, so he has the three laws of stratigraphy, stratigraphy, which are really, again, to go back to the the comment about insight mm-hmm. that uh, made many, many podcasts ago. Once you've had an insight, of course, I'm borrowing this from uh, another scholar, a 20th century scholar whose name is escaping me. His, right. his whole book, his 700-page book called Insight. Lonergan, Bernard Lonergan. Yes. Thank God I remembered that. Uh-huh. That would be embarrassing. But uh, Bernard Lonergan, you know, once you've had an insight, you look at how could you not have had this? How could you not have seen this? Uh-huh. But, you know, it took Steno to actually see it, apparently. Yeah. And, and to, put it, to put it out there in a way that was... Um, that people latched onto, and he and he put it out into this tumult, this absolute. So the late t- 17th century was this time of transition where people were looking at the natural world, but people had also gone through the whole convulsion of the Reformation. Yeah. Was still going through the latter phases of the Reformation and the Counter Reformation slash Catholic Reformation, whatever you want to call it. Right. The post Trent. Um, the post-Trent Catholic Church, yeah, post-Council of Trent, and 
And, and so into that ferment comes, you know, of course, people like Galileo and Kepler, um, and for that matter, Newton, uh, and Leibniz, and a whole host of other scholars whose names are not so well remembered today, um, who are really doing sort of the preliminary work that, you know, in the 18th and 19th century would start getting systematized and really, you know, the, the consequences start to be worked out and the, the joining points start to be seen and the whole things start to be, you know, the puzzle pieces start to fit together into a coherent view of the world. We don't really have that yet. I mean, we had the Aristotelian paradigm, mm -hmm. which was just breaking down left and right in the face of these. Um, and it, it, was, it was not that extensive. It just wasn't based on that much observational data. It couldn't, it couldn't handle in detail all of these new observations. It couldn't handle in detail what people were seeing with telescopes, which now by the late 17th century, people are seeing all, all sorts of crazy things in telescopes. Right. They're finding comets left and right. And yeah. It's not just the visible ones, not just the you know, huge portent of doom comets across the sky. <laughs> right. They're seeing little ones in their telescopes all the time. Oh. Um, they're seeing galaxies. They're seeing nebulae. Yeah. There's you know, which, of course, was what they called them to start with. And it's just cloud. It's it's you know, right. it's, yeah. it's a spiral yeah. nebula. Uh -huh. It's 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 shaped like a pin. Why are there so many of these? Uh -huh. <laughs> All these funny spiral-shaped little glowing clouds in the heavens you can see with your telescope. Isn't that quaint? <laughs> that God left those here for us to find. Which is true. Yeah. It is quaint that yeah. God left those here for us to find. They happen not to be that small, though. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> They're very large features, as it turns out. We had, had no idea of that yet. Had not, had not put that many pieces together. And people were, you know, the printing press has been around for almost two centuries at this point. Yeah. Has, has been around for two centuries at this point. Um, printing is now, you know, major business. People are getting used to, you know, reading these reports of strange things from other places. You know, of right. course, people are, and of course, people are exploring the world, and the fact that there are two extra continents is is itself a little strange. That you know, we we thought the world was so simple, and uh, it's not quite as simple as that. Uh -huh. um, how could we possibly fit all of these animals in the new world onto Noah's Ark as well? <laughs> well right. People start to ask these humorous uh, questions. Um, kind of nagging questions, and the the and of course, having just gone through the Reformation, we're still in this state of taking the Bible, you know, the sola scriptura, that argument, and it affects people on the Catholic side. You know, there there is this there is this tendency to to sort of draw back to that, you know, to abandon a lot of what was going on in the scholastic synthesis uh -huh. and sort of fall back to the trenches. And, you know, and, and concentrate a lot. And to a degree, we're still doing it today. Um, to, to a degree, we're still today. A lot of our energy gets taken up arguing the sacraments based on Scripture. You know, by arguing Catholic, you know, dogma with Protestants based on Scripture. Right. And um, we're not, you know, we haven't, we haven't. We, we haven't gotten back to the point of having the intellectual confidence to sort of turn back on a large scale across cultures to, um, to, to re-engage with these larger questions. Yeah. I think to some degree that's still true. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So Steno exists in the middle of all of this, this tumult and uproar. Yeah. And he's looking at things that, um, how to put it, so Steno is, Steno is caught between these two existing paradigms. And we were discussing this before we started the podcast. Right. Of, there, were two, there were two views of time. And this is a classic human, 
problem, is that we reduce things to a false dichotomy. We have the Hindu slash ancient Greek, which goes all the way through Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas comments on it, um, idea that the world has always existed. Mm -hmm. It's always existed more or less the way that it is now. It's gone through all these infinite cycles, and it's just, it's just always existed. Right. And Thomas Aquinas actually logically can't find a problem with that. Thomas Aquinas sort of shrugs and says, but it doesn't have to be that way. And as a matter of fact, the testimony of Scripture says that there was a beginning. Right. So there's a beginning. Right. Um, and, so, and in that beginning, in the, especially in the atmosphere of the 16th and 17th century, when you're arguing at hammer and tongs which side of this vicious, vicious debate is more true to Scripture... The attitude that scripture is basically all that matters, more so, I think, than in the 15th and 14th and 13th centuries, mm -hmm. um, that begins to be, you know, sort of the, the attitude. Whether people, whether people say it explicitly, which sometimes they did say it explicitly, uh, but whether they say it explicitly or not, you know, your, your choice becomes locked into this false dichotomy between a world that's always existed, infinity, age of the earth. Right. Or 6,000 years, because if you add up all the genealogies from Adam down to, oh. you can add up the genealogies down to at least, um, you know, whatever the last king of Judah was, right. in, you know, five, whatnot, B.C. And then you can tie that into secular history and do some calculations, which, of course, is how we found out it was five-something B.C. And voila, presto, the world is, in the late 17th century, getting towards 6,000 years old. It's over 6,000 years old now. <laughs> we've, we've gone right past that uh -huh. and of course people you know like once you have a number like that people can't help but think the world the end of the world is just around the corner it's not just christians but people in general can't help but thinking the world the end of the world is just around the corner yeah 2012 and all of that right. stuff and that's right etc etc um people people are very numerological we we will we will attempt attribute significance to round numbers <laughs> Willy nilly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we that's do right. it all the time. Yeah. Um, if we find out, we do a calculation like this and find out that we're at 5,783. Oh gosh, that's 6,000. It's all going to be over with. We're living in the end times and the, 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 the beast is among us. And that's, that's uh, human nature. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But Steno, Steno comes into this and, you know, so he's looking at the world and somehow, despite the fact that he really never goes into serious depth on the how old the earth is question what he bequeaths to us is this, these principles and the, the most basic of which is the principle of superposition old stuff is on the bottom young stuff is on the top Fair enough. And the idea, but that mere idea that there could be progress but that it could be sensible progress this is another so a lot of these what I'm talking about I'm getting out of I just had the privilege to read Alan Cutler's He's a geoscientist who's associated with the Smithsonian, or uh -huh. was at the time the book was written. Um, it's called Seashell on the Mountaintop. So it emphasizes this debate over fossil shells quite a lot. This mm -hmm. idea that, you know, how are there shells inside rocks? Um, which was something that in the late 17th century people had finally gotten squarely within their crosshairs and said, why is this? Right. And it was kind of a minority view that they were actually shells. I mean, they look like seashells. They look at... By God, they look like clams, or in some cases, they look like nautilus uh -huh. or, or other types of shells. Uh, it's got to be a shell. Sadly, that, that was a minority view. And yeah. people, 
preferred the idea that, well, you know, maybe the Earth simply grows things because they're sort of a Shelley principle, which is a sort of thing that you can... <laughs> a late... I think Moliere makes fun of the sort of late degraded uh, Aristotelians of his day, which Moliere is also 17th century. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I believe somewhere in his works there's a doctor who says, well, this, this drug causes sleep because it contains a dormitive principle. Which is, of course, oh to say nothing God. at all, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's the Shelley principle. Uh, they, they grow spontaneously. And of course, at that point, people still believe that you know flies, maggots, frogs, whatnot could grow spontaneously. Maybe shells grow spontaneously, and then little creatures come in, in the 17th century. How could you even you know maybe there maybe maybe hermit crabs is really the paradigm for all shells. They just come to exist, and then something comes to live in them. I don't I don't know that that was actually a <laughs> But I'm certain someone, you know, someone mentioned it. I'm sure because all of these crazy ideas were being thrown around back then. Yeah. And people make these observations, and there are, you know, honest to god shells inside these rocks. They do. Some of them look very similar. Suspiciously, some of them near the seacoast in Italy. But if you go up into the mountains in England, well, this and this was a this was a problem for people believing that they were shells. Um, well, the. There are things that sort of look like shells, but they don't look like any living animals. Ah. And of course, you turn around from the perspective of the early 21st century. Yeah, because those were Devonian shells. Yeah, those animals are all dead. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they're extinct. Right. Um, but that, I mean, they couldn't cope with that, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and that and that was a very that was a very potent argument against, which of course Steno comes out on the side of. It's a shell. If it looks like a shell, if it walks like a shell, if it quacks like a shell, it must be a shell. Uh-huh. Um, and and you know, so his his other principles, so superposition. You know, older rocks are on the bottom, younger rocks are on the top, unless right. something's been disturbed. Uh, which of course things get really disturbed up in the mountains. But that was another uh-huh. that was another insight people hadn't really necessarily had yet. Right. Although if you stare at a mountainside, it's pretty obvious. Um, you know, the uh, Alan Cutler does. In, the, in astronomy, this is called pre-covery. Pre-covery. So there are photographs of the planet. Well, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and transgress all boundaries here and go ahead and call Pluto a planet for okay. the sake of argument. You're forgiving. Uh, for the sake of uh, nostalgia, shall I say? Indeed. For the sake of nostalgia, uh, Pluto was pre-covered um, as early as I want to say 1916. I was just looking oh. at that Wikipedia article the other day. I want to say it was so 14 years before its discovery was announced. People had it on photographic plates, astronomic um, observations of it. So, but that, but they didn't recognize what it was. Right. So likewise, you can pre-cover some of these notions that Steno had in no less than Leonardo da Vinci. Smart dude, didn't get his stuff together to get published very often. Ah. So he had notebooks that people, you know, in centuries later went back through and realized he had, a, he had some of these ideas. He had a few of these ideas. And Leonardo da Vinci could, when he chose to, paint rocks that were much more realistic than almost anybody else because he actually looked at mountain size. I mean, this is, a, this is again, a point that Cutler makes. I haven't gone to an art museum to try to test this idea myself. But Cutler, who's also a geologist, I can at least give him this much of the benefit of the doubt, comments that, you know, landscapes often, they just have these sort of blobby, really unrealistic-looking mountains and cliffs and whatnot. That's not really their artist's focus they, they, they don't pay attention to the details you don't see you know say a red rock 
<laughs> and a, a clear-cut boundary and a gray law, a gray rock, like you'll often actually see in certain places in road cuts, or there weren't road cuts back then, but in steep valleys, mm -hmm. um, steep uh, canyons and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's you know the sort of observation that you have to make if you're going to start going in this direction. So the principle of superposition, this principle of inclusion. So stem of say, okay, here's a, a shell, and it must be older than the mud than this clay rock around this shell. Um, so Steno laid down these very simple guidelines. In the middle of this furor and tumult of crazy ideas going around, and gradually, over the decades after his death, people sort of recovered it, and in the 18th century they started using these ideas as more and more building blocks, and they started to, again, they made observations in enough places, started to put the pieces together, and only in the 19th century really started to have this idea of like a geologic time scale, anything like what we see today. And I mean, once they had that, it started to come together very quickly, mm. relatively quickly. It only took a few decades. Mm -hmm. um, so Steno, but Steno, and of course he not only, you know, there's a third, there's a third law of stratigraphy that's the law of, you know, it, well, it's original horizontality. Yeah, there's inclusion and there's original horizontality, which goes... You know, the, the strata were formed in water, which they pretty much generally were. Um, there, there are some things that actually form on land as more like desert sand deposits or something like that. But at some point, really, to get lithified, even those have to be underwater at some point, under, huh. under an arm of the ocean. Um, so he leaves all of these, he leaves us these principles for others to, to make use of. So Steno, um, yeah, he's, he's a fascinating figure, and he's a really tragic figure as well, because he doesn't live long enough to see all these ideas bear fruit. And in fact, at the end of his life, in the latter stages of his life, you know, so he, he converts from Protestantism to Catholicism uh -huh. in his time in Florence. Um, and then he becomes a priest. And he actually makes the same decision that Blaise Pascal made to deliberately leave scholarship behind as such, or at least non-religious scholarship behind, and dedicate himself to being a priest. And of course, Steno's you know, trying to convert you know, his, his fellow you know, Protestants back, which he you know, succeeded in a handful of cases, but not many, of course. Um, and then eventually he got the thankless job of Rome actually you know, named him a bishop and sent him back to the, you know, the wild, frigid North Country for him to labor away as a, a Catholic bishop you know, in the midst of you know, Lutheran Central. And, you know, that, that was an extremely thankless job, and he got kicked out of one city and, you know, evicted and thrown out and, you know, had to go to a couple of different places at different times and, you know, during the latter stages of his life. And he attempted, you know, and he was one of those, those saintly bishops, because he is, of course, he's Blessed Nicholas Steno. I don't think he's Saint Nicholas Steno. I think uh, he's still Blessed Nicholas Steno, but uh -huh. he, was, he was beatified That's by John Paul II. Oh, hi. Um, Fairly recent. And he, he was one of these classic bishops who, you know, dressed in very poor clothing and, you know, sold his crozier and his silver ring to give money to the poor and eventually wore himself out with, you know, cold and fasting and, you know, died in probably his late 40s. Jesus. Um Maybe he took it a little too far. Maybe he could have been more used to his flock if he'd stayed around just a little bit longer. But nevertheless, you have to appreciate that. And again, he's a, he's a classic type, just oh. like um, you know Father McGivney of the Knights of Columbus or, or Father Augustine Tolton, the first African-American priest who you know, gave his life in Chicago and also died probably in his 40s mm. of simply overwork. Yeah. 
there's too many questions to be asking and trying to answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was that was that was Steno's life, and that's the the sort of fascinating. I mean, that's that's. But he leaves, you know, the final law, of course, is his law of interface, constant interfacial angles, which is another thing that he did not live nearly long enough to see the consequences of, the idea that a given, say, quartz. Quartz, of course, often grows. We find quartz crystals that grew in hot water and have these very nice prismatic shapes. And you, if you measure the angle from one, you know, they can be stubby, they can be long and skinny, um, they can even have these sort of scepter-like enlargements on one end. Yeah. But... There's a, a correspondence that you can work out, and if you measure the angle between a given face and a given face, whether it's large on that crystal or small, you can see that there's a constant angle between any given pair of faces. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's the law of constant interfacial angles, and it's due to the fact that there's this translational symmetry of atoms in a given structure that are repeated quadrillions and quintillions and sextillions of times inside any given macroscopic crystal. And because of that, that geometric pattern, they can only grow in certain ways, unless they're you know unless they're disturbed. You know you can you can force the crystal to grow around a disturbance, but if you give it free reign and a fluid to grow from the um, the existing medium, it's going to grow into those shapes and those shapes specifically, and they will have that commonality. There'll be a variety of those shapes, and yet that's the thing. Just like just like Steno's laws eventually lead us to an, an Earth that is. Four and a half billion years old, not six thousand years old, Quite a difference, but huh? not infinitely old either, because that's also an important difference. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, Steno's laws led us to that middle, which is where the truth actually is. Yeah, yeah. and likewise, you know, crystals—they're not all the same shape. They're not certainly not all the same size, but there are commonalities. There, there is order. It's not just chaos. Yeah, which is yeah. another you know classic. You know, the sort of atheist, you know, goes back to Epicurus, the idea that the world is just chaos. Yeah. There is no God, there's no nothing, there's no order, there's just chaos. Which is, of course, a little silly. Uh, but it's but it's something that people, it's, it's a tempting, it's one of the two tempting extremes. You know, the, the idea that everything was laid out by God perfectly 6,000 years ago, and everything that's happened since then is a marring of his perfect creation, probably due to original sin. Um, or... But it's always existed and it's always in flux and there's no order to it, whatever. Again, the truth is in the middle. Yeah, the I'm truth is good. in the middle. Well, the, and with, with that, you, you come to one of the key themes that uh, uh, perdures uh, throughout our uh, podcast. And I've uh, heard, especially toward the end here, how there are um, a number of launching off points uh, for uh, going uh, back to some of the insights of previous uh, episodes, and also to go forward not only further into geology, but I, I, I'm also eager now to make some connections to what we've been living through in, in real time here uh, in um, the, the headlines of the day, uh, mm -hmm. the religion uh, crisis, uh, yeah. Catholic Church crisis. <laughs> so why don't, we, why don't we stop here for this episode mm -hmm. and, um, and take uh, up the the relevancies uh, in our next conversation, which will be soon. Yes. Yes. Very thank soon. You, listeners. Yeah. Thanks very much.